This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Right now, we want to go to Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin sitting down with our Kevin Cirilli live on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. I want to welcome also our audience listening on Bloomberg Radio. We're joined by Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. Thank you for being here. Great. Thank you for being here at the Treasury. I want to start right now with comments that were made earlier by yourself as well as Secretary Ross that there could potentially be, should the president enact his trade proposals, exemptions for other countries. What would a country have to do, Mr. Secretary, to qualify for such an exemption? So the president has already made clear that it relates to Mexico and Canada, that to the extent we have a new NAFTA agreement with them, that they will be exempted from the steel and aluminum tariffs. So I'm not going to comment on other, other countries. It would be premature. But uh, obviously, Canada, we have a very close relationship in terms of steel going back and forth, and that's something that we're focused on. With regards to the timing of this annou- announcement, is it illogical to think that we could get an announcement this week? Um, that is the plan, yes. So uh, as, of, as early as tomorrow? Uh, it could be as early as tomorrow. It could be Friday. We're working to get the, the finishing documents on this. When you look at the response from folks around the world, and let's start there, from China as well as the European Union who have criticized this, who have said that they would file complaints, some have already filed complaints, what's your response to those criticisms from those particular countries? So first I would say, let's just put this in perspective. So the president has been very clear, this has been since the campaign, this has been since his presidency, on what his economic agenda is. And we've talked about constantly, it is a three-tiered, it's tax reform, regulatory relief, and trade. So we got tax reform done. I think a lot of people question whether we got that done. It took 30 years since the last time. Uh, We've already seen the economic benefits of tax reform. We've done a lot of work in terms of regulatory relief. We're looking forward to hopefully the new Dodd-Frank bill passing on a bipartisan basis. I think that's a big step in the right direction for community banks, regional banks being able to grow. And we've been talking about trade for the last year. So since my first G20 finance ministers meeting, we've been talking about trade. So everything we're doing here has been in discussion. Uh, The president is concerned about the national security risk as it relates to steel and aluminum. Secretary Ross has been working on that report. We've been having discussions with people. So this is a natural evolution of what the president's economic policies are. So what about then when House Speaker Paul Ryan says, like he did the other day, that he's advocating for a more, quote-unquote, surgical approach with regards to these trade policies? Is he going to be satisfied this week when when this announcement is complete? Is this going to be a more surgical approach like the Republicans on Capitol Hill have advocated for? Well, again, I I think it's somewhere in between. So, you know, and I think, look, the president wants to take on the trade issue. It's a very important economic issue. As you know, you know, China's market is not open. 
to our companies and our workers the way our markets are open for them. The president believes in free and fair trade, but he wants reciprocal trade and reciprocal fair deals. And that's why when we go forward with the 232, there is a mechanism that, uh, that will be able to deal with these issues. You know, I want to follow up with something that President Trump tweeted earlier today about intellectual property, especially as we're nearing the end of NAFTA renegotiations in particular. A lot of this some would argue that China has backdoor access through Mexico and Canada uh, and are, is using the NAFTA agreement to kind of infiltrate those markets. Is that something that you would like to see improved or this administration would like to see improved with regards to these final negotiations? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's one of the big issues we have of things that are that come into the United States through in particular Mexico, whether it's autos, auto parts, other things. But uh, this is a big issue for the president and something that we're focused on as part of the renegotiation. But again, let me just put this in context. NAFTA is an old agreement. Uh, we have very important trading relationships with Canada and Mexico. But the president wants to look at this agreement and wants a better deal for American workers and American companies. That's what this is all about, more fair and balanced trade. So with regards to trade, in particular China, because really that's, I mean, it's really no secret, Mr. Secretary, that China has been taking advantage of the aluminum and steel markets here in the United States for quite some time. They have called this policy, an economic minister, a quote-unquote stupid idea to some extent. And the relationship, they have called for a point person within the administration to be the, the trade person uh, with regards to, to U.S.-China policy. What's your response to the Chinese? Sure. So first of all, and again, I just want to put this in context. I think President Trump and President Xi have the best relationship of any two presidents in the history of the two countries. And President Trump, from the first time we met at Mar-a-Lago, was very direct in we're concerned about the trade deficit. And the Chinese and President Xi acknowledged that and said it's in our mutual interest to have a more balanced trading relationship. So from a high level, we absolutely have agreements. Um, I've, had, I've had many dialogues with my counterparts. Uh, I saw Leo He when I was in Davos. I saw him last week when he was here. We met with him uh, over a two-day period. We're having very direct discussions with them about how to deal with these issues. So again, I think that uh, we've been very clear in what our objectives are, and now we've got to figure out if there's a way we can work together to meet these objectives. One of the issues that I find interesting with regards to the tariff debate that's going on is who exactly it would help. And it's been interesting to watch some of the Republicans in Congress criticize the policy proposal. But some in the energy sector have risen concerns about how this would raise the cost of energy infrastructure uh, in the, throughout the country, uh, particularly the cost of building pipelines. To folks who say this could end up raising costs or to folks who say that this might uh, hurt economic growth, and they cite that as a concern, some of them even Republicans, what's your response to them who, who feel that these tariffs could ultimately offset some of the economic gains that have been made as a result of tax policy? Well, we have, we have a big economic team that's working on this uh, between Treasury, the White House, uh, U.S. Trade, Commerce, uh, the, the CEA. We have a big team that's working on this. So we've looked at these issues. We've looked at them very carefully. Um, but on the other hand, the issue is, again, we have unfair trade deals, and the president is determined that we look at these and we rene renegotiate these so that they're good for American business. You mentioned the team, but someone's leaving that team, Gary Cohn. The market didn't like that. They reacted negatively to that. 
What hole will he leave in this administration's economic team? Uh, Gary's been a terrific partner. I've, I've known Gary, obviously, for a long period of time since my, my time at Goldman Sachs. Uh, Gary was very important in, in many things we did here. But there's a big economic team, and uh, we'll be replacing Gary at some point. And there's a lot of people who are working together and, and will continue to work together. So we, we, we will miss him. We wish him well. But uh, we're going to move forward. All right. Now i got to get into who's it going to be. Any timetable? Let's start there. Any timetable for when we could get a named successor? I, I don't think we have a timetable like all these other issues. Uh, we'll carefully review it. We'll make recommendations to the president. And he'll Some decide. of those recommendations are Kevin Hassett, Jim Donovan, Larry Kudlow, Peter Navarro. Any of these names? Can I, can I get any sense of who's on the shortlist for, for well, this role? Well, as you recall, when we were looking at Fed, <laughs> Fed chairs, you tried the same thing. And it, as you recall, I was pretty clear in that we're not going to talk about confidential issues. No, it but is. I, I do want to go back to yeah. one other issue when you know you talk about growth. A year ago, we were sitting at 2% GDP. And lots of people lined up and said, we'd never get to 3% GDP. That's true. We've said all along, our goal is to have 3% sustained GDP. We've had two quarters of it. We're not there on a constant basis yet. But the president is very focused on growth. That is our number one objective. And let me ask you a follow-up just in terms of, of, of who this policy, should he ultimately go with this trade policy pitch? He's headed to southwestern Pennsylvania ahead of a special election there in particular. Does this administration feel that, that Americans are going to actually, his supporters will rally behind this this proposal? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that Americans understand that the president is for free trade, but free and fair trade. And he wants to get good deals. He's the salesman in chief for American business. Let's move on just while we're on the list of potential names. Any timing update on when we will get a name for the Federal Reserve Vice Chair? Um, we're working on that. Again, I, I think it's something that will be in the near future. Um, as you know, there's a process that people go through even once we make a recommendation to the president for background checks and everything else. So it's, uh, it's unfortunately a lengthy process. But, uh, Have you we're, made that recommendation? Uh, I'm not going to comment specifically, but I can tell you there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of work that's gone on on that. All right. Another big issue up on Capitol Hill is Dodd-Frank. You mentioned it. You mentioned deregulatory reform. Eleven, I believe, Democratic senators have signed on to the community banking Dodd-Frank bill that is advancing, scheduled to advance, if not this week, out of the Senate early next week. This is something that this administration supports, no? But Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, we, we've worked very closely with Congress on this. Uh, a lot of these things are similar to the recommendations that we made and the reports that we delivered to the president. And again, I think the most important issue is we believe in regulation, but we need to have proper and prudent regulation. And as it relates to this, we need to make sure that community banks and regional banks can grow, can lend. That's the engine of growth for our economy, lending to small and medium-sized businesses. But Democrats like Senator Elizabeth Warren say that this is just only going to help the big banks, that this is just going to let some banks that have been, community banks even, that have been bailed out during the 2008 financial crash. What's your response? Uh, I'm not sure why she feels that way. I, I don't agree with her on this. Again, I think this is the way bipartisan legislation should work, which has been a compromise and important issues and well thought out.
after the, it advances out of the Senate, it'll go to the House. I think there's been like several dozen bipartisan wonkier items that have advanced out of uh, the House. Are there any specifics that you would like to see added to this bill that you guys could get on board with once it clears the Senate? Well, you know, again, one, we're very supportive of the legislation. We're also supportive of certain issues in the House. I think it likely will go to conference. And again, I think the important thing is this can get over the finish line, which will be good for the economy and good for commercial and regional banks. And then after that, what's next? Is it infrastructure? Is it reforming the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? What's the next Big item for for you for your for the administration from an economic FinReg perspective. Well, for, from my perspective, uh, from Treasury's perspective, the other piece of legislation we're working very closely with Senator Cornyn is on FIRMA, which is is basically upgrading CFIUS and CFIUS reform. Uh, I believe that this is very important for national security and very important for everything we're doing. So uh, we're hopeful that that'll get through. I think, as you know, we've had a We've, we've talked about housing reform. I'm not sure that's something that will get done this summer before the elections, but we are determined to try to get Fannie and Freddie restructured in some format so that we don't put taxpayers at risk. Uh, and as you know, uh, we're very focused here at Treasury working closely with the IRS on the implementation of the Tax Jobs Act. So it touches every single aspect of the IRS. We've got about a minute or two left, but on the issue of tax reform in particular, there's been some chatter, and I'm really interested to get your take on this, that there could even be an additional bill later this year with tweaks to the tax reform or even more. Even I think President Trump had said it in one of his speeches that he would like to see more this year before the midterms. Is that actually in the works? Um, it, it may be. So what I would say is there's a lot that we can do on regulations. There's a few items that may need to go through a technical corrections bill. And then I think the president is, is, is interested in looking at, you know, what are things that we could continue to do afterwards and move forward. Bottom line, this week, when there's a new trade tariff policy announced, what is the reaction going to be from the markets, number one, but Republicans? Are there, is there going to be satisfaction, or is there going to be a lot of criticism, like, quite frankly, we've seen all week? Well, I'm not going to comment on where the markets are in the short term. As you know, there's a lot of volatility. There's no question the market is still up a ton since the election, which is reflective of the president's economic agenda. And I think America is a great place to invest. So over the long term, I still think there's tremendous upside in the market. All right, Mr. Secretary, we thank you very much for, for coming on with Bloomberg News. We appreciate your right. time. Thank you for being here. And I will toss it back to you in the studio. All right, you've been listening to Kevin Cirilli, our chief Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News, of course, talking to Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin uh, there live at the Treasury Department, talking about a variety of issues, but obviously about one that we've been focusing on as a result of the White House focusing on trade. And the Treasury Secretary asked about that, and he said the plan is to get a tariff announcement as soon as tomorrow. Of course, President Trump has talked about specific tariffs when it comes to aluminum and steel and some other areas, so we'll look for some specificity, perhaps, on that 
tomorrow. Uh, as for Gary Cohn, also a round of questioning from Kevin Cirilli to the Treasury Secretary, and he mentioned that uh, Mr. Cohn, which was the chief economic advisor within the White House, saying that he's been a terrific partner. They miss him, uh, will, will miss him, wish him well, but they've got to move forward. They said there's no timetable, though, for his successor. Again, also the Treasury Secretary saying that the president's number one policy objective is growth, calling President Trump the salesman-in-chief when it comes to growth. But again, some of the key things, maybe some more news specifics on that tariff policy, uh, possibly coming as early as Thursday. So again, Kevin Cirilli, our chief Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News, talking with Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, live from the Treasury Department. This is Bloomberg. Where are we running to, certainly when it comes to the economy? We certainly got an update just uh, from the Fed. The Fed Beige Book just released, as we mentioned some of the headlines. Let's uh, get some thoughts and also his economic outlook. Back with us, Dan North, Chief Economist at Euler Hermes. He joins us on the phone from Baltimore. Dan, is it snowing? Well, it was uh, snowing and raining earlier on, but it's pretty well all finished here. You've got a mess up there, though? Not too bad, and it's not sticking too much, so we'll see. Maybe not as bad as everybody was anticipating. Um, and when it comes to the economy, what we got from the Fed may be not so bad, and maybe we're starting to see inflation begin to pick up here and wages as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's kind of what we're expecting for this year. Um, you know, there was a good piece of news, a particularly good piece of news, I thought, that came out that maybe got overlooked a little bit, which is um, was the uh, personal income report. And mm -hmm. you saw in that report that um, personal taxes fell 3.3%, which is like the most in nine years. Yeah, That's a result of the uh, tax package, and it drove up personal income uh, 0.9 percent is the biggest move in five years, and it jacked the savings rate back up. So even though there was less spending, this is a really good platform where we get a tax cut. Now we're getting more income, and you know we think that's going to continue. We do see wage pressures coming this year. I think. All right. So, uh, so I wouldn't want to be necessarily Jay Powell right now. Okay, here he is, the new guy in town, not new totally, of course, to the Fed, uh, and a smart individual certainly, but. You know, you're at a tricky juncture, right? You don't want inflation to get out of control. You've got growth, and you're pretty happy about it. So you're also on a trajectory where you're raising interest rates uh, at the Federal Reserve. So you've got to be careful, right, to raise at the right rate without starting to put pressure on growth. Um, it's tough. Yeah, and this is always the balance that's that's tricky because you can't worry about so much about inflation today. You have to worry about inflation tomorrow, and tomorrow means three to five quarters ahead of time, because you know any monetary policy action you take today, it's going to take that long to actually filter through the economy and have an effect. So it's it's a tougher balancing act than it might look like. But I think it's pretty well telegraphed what's going to happen, and that's going to make it a little bit easier to swallow. I think. Three hikes is a lock this year. We're mm -hmm. going to continue to unwind the balance sheet. And, um, you know, this we're going to get back more towards normalized rate. They have to do that. And even if we go up a whole another 1% this year, yeah. that puts us at 2.25%. I mean, that's still very, very low historically. So I think that, um, yeah, this, the, you know, the market's always tasked a new Fed chairman. It's true. But I think that uh, that three is, is certainly in place. 
And it's, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about Powell and Bernanke mm. and the Bernanke put, and, you know, our market's going to expect that Bernanke put. And I think instead what you're going to get is more of a Powell call, I would say it, hmm. um, because, you know, what's, what he's going to do is continue to raise interest rates, and it will pressure equities and drive people out of equities, and it's like it's going to drive prices down towards the, you know, the sort of imaginary strike price. Um, I think he's, he's, he's not at this point in the economy as strong as it is with inflationary pressures. Yeah. I don't think there's any way he's going to back off on, uh, on those interest rate increases. So let's throw on top of this all of the trade talk that we've gotten out of the White House, out of the president specifically. And it feels like it goes from targeting China to being more comprehensive uh, and going after folks like Mexico and Canada and the European <laughs> Union and the potential for a trade war. Uh, does that potentially negate any of the benefits that we got from the tax overhaul? Oh, it sure could, and it sure could more than do that. I mean, uh, you know, let's be clear that these tariffs on uh, steel and aluminum are going to be great for steel and aluminum producers domestically, and they're going to be bad for everybody else, everybody else. Uh, manufacturers who use steel and aluminum, ultimately the end consumer, consumers who use steel and aluminum, they're all going to feel the effects. And then you have, you know, these retaliatory actions, which are just hanging out there. Um, and that could certainly cause a lot of damage, too. And I think the net effect, Carol, is you might increase some jobs in steel and aluminum production. You're going to lose more jobs than that um, everywhere else. So it's, uh, it's not a great plan. I mean, if you want free and fair trade, mm. you renegotiate deals or you go to the WTO. You don't just drop the hammer so, uh, so sharply like that and, and risk this retaliation. So in your conversation uh, or conversations, Dan, with your team over at uh, Euler Remise, I mean, and with clients, how often does recession come, come up in the conversation? Not anymore. Not not in a long time, actually. Wow. You know, ever since the uh, the end of the Great Recession, I'd go out on the road and talk to clients and trade groups and ask, "How are things going?" And the response was, "Well, okay, but not nearly as good as it was before the recession." Last year, I asked the same question and got answers completely different. Answers that were, "Things are fantastic. It's on fire. Uh, if you can't make money now, you could never make money. It's terrific." Um, I actually got this out of the metals groups and manufacturers, and it's actually the big problem they're facing is a shortage of labor. But, you know, know, if I go back to 2007, 2006, I probably had a bunch of those conversations, too. Right. Are we missing anything? Just got about 20 seconds left, Dan. Well, what, you were getting the same response? Yeah, a lot of optimism, right? Everything's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there was hopefulness, but now it's very concrete. You know, okay. uh, business conditions are, are really much better. Yeah. Um, and and you really need to have that labor force to keep growing because it's the first opportunity uh, mm-hmm. in a long time where you've got growth. All right, we got to run, Dan. Nice to get some time. Always is with you, Dan North. He's chief economist at Euler Hermes, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. Tomorrow is International Women's Day, and along those lines, our next guest and her team have been calling for more women on boards for the past two decades at least. Susan Keating is CEO at Women Corporate Directors Foundation, WCD. She joins us uh, from the Women Corporate Directors Americas Institute in Miami. Susan, nice to have you here. Just give us a little background about what you guys are all about and what your mission is. 
Absolutely, Carol, and what a pleasure to join you today. Uh, we are here in Miami, uh, actually very uh, focused on uh, topics that are very relevant to the women that are our members that serve in corporate boardrooms. And just to give a, a little bit of background, as you suggested, uh, this is an organization uh, that has been around for almost 20 years, so just a little under 20 years, that has been calling for more women in boardrooms uh, for uh, quite some time. And we are a membership organization with uh, over 2,000 women members. We have 80 chapters uh, around the world. And so we're very global in nature, but we're very focused on women and our members are women who serve on public or large privately held company boards. Well, let me, um, let me jump in for a second, because as you know, McKinsey and others have done some great research, and I talk about it all the time, uh, you know, in terms of the importance of diversity when it comes to C-suite, executive leadership, and to corporate boards, that when you have that, you do see financial outperformance versus those companies that don't have uh, diverse uh, executive compositions. Having said that, that data has been out there for a while. Why is it that we still need to kind of tell people that this is what you should be doing? Well, you know, the data is there, and it's interesting. Uh, just very recently, a group of us that represent organizations that advocate for diversity uh, on corporate boards convened, and we all agreed that the data is there, it's been proven, and uh, that, in fact, performance uh with companies that have diverse boards, mm -hmm. uh, they do outperform others. And so we don't need to prove that, but what we do need to do is be more deliberate in uh, really taking action uh, and working together to move the needle. And, and I think that this gets back to a lot of the issues that we are seeing today uh, around culture around traditional uh, sort of ways of managing businesses and, and those sorts of things. And, and what I am very excited about is that I do think that with some of the incredible breakthroughs uh, that are taking place around just awareness around women mm -hmm. and setbacks and so forth, that um, our time has come where I think we can really make a difference. Well, let's jump on that. As you know, as I mentioned at the outset, you've been working on this for about 20 years or so, um, specifically with a with a you know specified mission here. Having said that, in the last year, because of hashtag Me Too and talk about and court cases, whether it's in Silicon Valley and inequalities, uh, whether it's media, Hollywood, science, art, you know, pick your industry. Has that is that going to make a much more significant dif difference because we are having such a conversation right now? I really believe so, because I, I think the moment is now uh, because the awareness is at an all-time high. Uh, so the moment is now to really help be part of the solution in advocating for helping provide a uh, you know, just a pipeline of board-prepared uh, and board-ready women uh, to companies that uh, really do want to make the transition uh, and do want to basically move to a much more diverse board. So I, I think the timing is right, and it's now. Well, you know, and it's funny, though. Like, I was looking at some data before we started uh, this segment. 
you know, one in five C-suite leaders is a woman. Fewer than one in 30 is a woman of color. So in terms of women, they're still significantly underrepresented, underrepresented, underrepresented. Let's try that again. Representation, absolutely. Sorry, it's been a a long week already. In the corporate pipeline, um, there's lean in. There's all these different, you know, philosophies. They're saying that we need to have more women in those C-suite positions in order to bring lower level women along. What's the answer here? Because I feel like we've been talking for a long time. Well, we have. But, you know, in addition to the cultural pushback, uh, that has slowed down and, and basically kind of kept us from making the kinds of uh, strides forward that we would like. Uh, there's also the issue and has been the issue, just as you described the corporate environment, is that there may not have been enough women that are board ready uh, that have come up through the labor force, through the management ranks, mm-hmm. up into the C-suite, and then candidates uh, to serve on these uh, large uh, and mid-cap uh, public boards. Right. It's kind of so, like the chicken and the egg syndrome, which comes first. So so are we seeing a change in that? Well, we are. I mean, what I am thrilled about, I, I have only been CEO of Women Corporate Directors now for three months, so I am the new chief executive. Mm-hmm. And what I am so proud of is what our founder uh, has envisioned and created and developed Uh, The opportunity now is to sort of take this to a next level at a time when the opportunity is really there for us to do that. So, so what? If you look at women corporate directors, uh, our membership is over 2,000 women who serve on public company, private, family business boards. In other words. We've built the pipeline. We have the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do all kinds of networking, uh, training. We pro- provide all kinds of tools and relevant information that is important for our women members uh, to be successful as corporate board members. And so you asked me, uh, you know, we are here uh, at the America's Institute. We right. have 100 people, board members, that are talking about, and, and these are women that represent companies are on boards of companies like Whole Foods, Toyota, right, right. Marriott, Aetna, and more. And Got we it. are talking about everything from cyber risk to executive compensation, how okay. to deal with a difficult CEO and so forth. Susan, good to get some time with you. Thank you. Susan Keating, Chief Executive Officer at Women Corporate Directors Foundation on the phone in Miami. This is Bloomberg. They say that breaking up is hard to do. Well, the revolving door continuing at the White House, the latest to leave President Trump's chief economic advisor and Goldman Sachs alum Gary Cohn. That broke uh, after the close yesterday. Here with more, Margaret Tollov, senior White House correspondent at Bloomberg News, joining us from the White House, and Matthew Phillips, Bloomberg Businessweek politics and policy editor from uh, D.C. as well. Margaret, let's start with you. You're fresh off the Daily White House press briefing with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. What's the update on what's going on at the White House? We did get a little bit more news on the upcoming tariffs announcement. Um, I'm sure you'd like to know whether it's tomorrow or Friday. <laughs> I would. <laughs> I, I don't know, but it will be before the end of the week. She did not, she would not clarify whether it would be tomorrow or Friday, which certainly suggests that there's still some last minute uh, maneuvering over exactly what this thing is going to say. Uh, Sarah Sanders saying during today's briefing, there are potential carve-outs for Canada, Mexico, and possibly other countries. They would be on a country-by-country basis, and the reason the, the explanation for any carve-out like that would be national security reasons. So, it it looks like um, 
at least on some level, to some degree, and we may not know until we actually see this, Gary Cohn's kind of waning act before this decision and this announcement of his uh, may have had some effect, the combination of discussions and pressure by Cohn, by those end users, uh, by uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, many Republicans in Congress, some on the national security staff urging President Trump, if you are going to do this, if you are, if you cannot be swayed from doing this, at least consider mitigating the impacts to Canada, to Mexico, to some partners in the EU. Right. We have to remember our trade is a two-way street, especially with the global supply chain. Matthew, come on in on this. Gary Cohn, let's just go back there for a moment. Uh, he did resign, but I remember, you know, this morning reading in and some business stories uh, here at Bloomberg, some stories out of Washington saying that, you know, maybe there's another job for him in the administration. Is that done now, Matt? Well, you know, I think Margaret would be uh, better able to answer that question than I would. We do have some reporting from uh, from Jennifer Jacobs that suggested that he would be willing to come back for a larger job, including maybe a cabinet post. But, you know, all those spots are filled. There was some chatter over the summer about how he wanted to be the next chairman of the Fed. Maybe he was going to be uh, the next secretary of the Treasury. Uh, and, and there was some sense and reporting that um, last month he was feeling a bit underutilized and he should have a bigger role and that he wanted the president to kind of lean on him more. It's not clear that any of those spots are really going to be open for him. And uh, I, I think the markets uh, are looking at, you know, uh, a White House that going forward is not going to have uh, the, the, the voice and the presence of a guy like Gary Cohn. Yeah, exactly. Margaret, come on in on. What are you hearing? Any, anything left for Gary Cohn or it's done? Yeah, well, that's my reporting from last night is that uh, the president uh, and Gary have uh, gone have been in discussions about this for, you know, the better part of a month after tax reform was done. Gary Cohn coming to the president and saying, look, put me to work. I need to do more if you want me to stay. I, there needs to be something more for me to do than than just my current role. Uh, the president and his team looking for um, whatever that something is. But there are no obvious spots. And uh, uh, while the tariff moves certainly seem to be a tipping point. Uh, it's uh, entirely plausible that uh, Gary Cohn uh, would have been making uh, a transition out um, anyhow in, in the coming weeks or months. Uh, but to, to make that decision and to make that decision public uh, on the same day as it became clear that the president uh, was not going to go his way on tariffs um, certainly seems like a pretty deliberate signal uh, uh, to, to suggest, um, uh, you know, a protest or a breaking point, even if there were other factors. Uh, but uh, from uh, from our reporting, from mm -hmm. my reporting, administration officials, White House officials saying the relationship between the two men is actually still quite good and cordial. Cohn is going to stay through a transition, help pick the next successor, and is, in fact, open to coming back under the right circumstances. You know, it's never easy. I, I remember when uh, President Trump won the election and everyone said, you you know what? It does take even uh, an, a politician with experience about a year to get kind of adjusted into the White House. So here we are, you know, over a year in with this new administration, Matt, and and we've seen a lot of changes in terms of people coming and going. Any signs that it's settling down? And how is this kind of handicapping what they can get done from here on out? I mean, I don't think that there are any indications that they're settling down. If anything, the past month has been, you know, uh, e even uh, e even more uh, topsy-turvy by, you know, by all measures. I mean, if you go back to uh, the scandal revolving around uh, Rob Porter, that seems to kind of mm -hmm. set, have set off this latest uh, uh, bit of, of – um, of up and down, and this is kind of the culmination of it. And what's interesting to me, and kind of the piece that we're putting together for the magazine for this week, is how the narrative has changed so quickly in the span of six weeks. When you go back to the end of January, 
the markets were at all-time high. Trump was coming back from what was seen as a very successful trip to Davos, where he right. uh, was buttoned up and was speaking to kind of the globalist crowd. And Cohn was seen as ascendant. Mm. Uh, and, and that you know, without Bannon uh, in, in the midst, um, there was a sense that kind of the 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 free traders, the globalists, had kind of won. That has completely been turned up on its head. And a lot of that thread started to get pulled with the Rob Porter scandal uh, that kind of knocked on to John Kelly right. and led to the uh, the situation with Jared uh, Kushner being um, pushed out of, the, of his security clearance situation. So right. uh, things have been changing very quickly. <laughs> the only I don't con- see that changing anymore. The only constant is change, it certainly feels like, with this administration. Matthew Phillips, thank you so much. Bloomberg Businessweek politics and policy editor. Check out the magazine and online. This week for the latest on politics, Margaret Tollev following everything from the White House. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.